Someday, you will ask the question, why God? Why God? Why do this to me? Why let this happen? And then pretty shortly after that, you'll ask the question, how God? How could you let this happen? I want to talk tonight about that experience and how we as Christians and maybe a few several of you maybe perhaps non-Christians approach this conversation because ultimately what it gets down to is the question of evil and suffering. Why does things happen like this? Uh, if there's a good God, why does he let bad things happen to me and to the people around me? And it's really honestly, I think for some of us, we might look down on that question and say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's really if you just have enough faith in God, if you just believe the right things, it's far more digestible. And that's kind of true, but it's not the whole story. Tonight, this might be one of the most challenging sermons you've heard to date. And it might be one of the most challenging sermons that you hear anytime you're in church. It's challenged me. As I studied and pre prepared for this, I struggled with it. And soon you're going to find out why. If you just think back, you know, 20 years ago, almost 20 years, you might have heard your parents talk about this or your older brother or sister the day when America was attacked by uh, 19 Islamic terrorists crashing two airplanes into buildings called the World Trade Center at that point and killing 3,000 people, plus or minus. Many of those people that were killed, murdered, I should say, were in the building as it collapsed. Some jumped to their death from the 30th, 50th, 100th story. They were jumping to their death because they would rather die on their own terms and to burn alive or to suffocate. Some made some very distressing phone calls to their, their loved ones. They picked up the phone and you could hear a wife talking to a husband saying, this is the last time you're going to hear my voice. I love you. Let the kids know I love them. And I'll be thinking about you. If you just scoot back a couple years, you'll also remember what you learned in history class, World War II, During this time, millions, 11 million people died ultimately. Six million of those people were Jewish. The atrocities committed against the Jewish people and prisoners of war and gypsies and a few others, miscellaneous thrown in there, were terrible. The kind of thing where if you see it, you would gag. Your gag reflex would be in full effect. A place I like to visit every now and then is the Museum of Tolerance. It's in LA and it's a museum dedicated to the memorial of this event, the systematic extermination of Jews and others. You remember that they pulled teeth out of their mouths, beat them with clubs. They would put them in large ovens and burn them. If they died outside of these ovens, of course, they just throw their bodies in a ditch because they didn't matter. Medical experiments were done on them, which most of the time would kill them. Other times, you know, they lived a lingering death as they wallowed on the floor amidst cold, calculated doctors and 
medical staff. And then there's the gas chambers escorting the weak and the infirm into the gas chamber and they unloaded upon them gases that would slowly murder them. They were treated worse than animals. There's a documentary on Netflix that I forced myself to watch in preparation, getting my head in the right space to really feel the gravity of evil suffering. And so if you want to go on Netflix, you can watch the Nazi concentration camps. It's old footage that they recorded uh, shortly after the war had been won. They recorded in black and white all the imagery so that people would never forget the kind of things that happen when you have a uh, maniacal, crazed person who wants to be a tyrant and systematically destroy a large swaths of people. In these videos, you see the naked bodies of these people that are starved, and so you see their ribs. I mean, they look like skeletons. After the war had finished, the neighboring villages were brought in to see these concentration camps, and people would go in laughing and smiling, thinking, oh, this isn't that big of a deal, and suddenly they come across a pile of bodies. And they would see the kind of violent ways that these people died. And the look on their faces, for many of them, changed. Evil. Recent history at Sandy Hook, December 14, 2012, Adam Lanza shot and killed 20 first graders. Think about that. This poor evil young man takes his gun, points it at a first grader. Maybe you have a brother or a sister who's that age. Or if not, maybe you've worked in kids' men and you've seen these little ones and you think, man, they're, they're precious, right? I mean, sinful, sure, but they're precious. And you have this sense of, I want to protect them. Well, Adam Lanza turned that, that thing off and instead of protecting them, he preyed upon them with his gun and murdered 20 first graders along with six adults December 14, 2012. Young person, I, I really want you to feel the weight of this. I'm being so serious and somber, not because I want to put a downer on your night, but because I want you to feel the weight of what it is we're talking about. Many of you guys have grown up in Compass, and you know the theological answers. You think, okay, I, God is good, he's sovereign, and therefore I understand these things under the... Under the the rule of his sovereignty. And, and you're not wrong, you're not wrong, but I don't want you to quickly or easily dismiss the fact that there is a real, tangible, palpable, painful suffering that happens all around us. These are just three highlighted events, but there are real people that are crying real tears and wondering and asking, and maybe this will be you sooner than later, saying, God, where are you? Why? What are you doing? How could you let this happen? And you're going to be put into a corner of saying, okay, if you really understand your God to be who he is, then what do you make of all of this evil and suffering? And not only the, the evil and suffering that exists, but the amount of it. We're not just talking about little, small corners of the world where people experience these kind of things. We're talking about regular, habitual evil, copious amounts of it. And here's, here's where the pastoral concern comes for you. Two, two pastoral concerns. Number one, um, some point, you yourself will experience evil perpetuated upon you. The odds are against you. And maybe the evil has already been committed against you, and this is just the first of a long life of evil committed against you. And I've talked to people in my office who have been 
committed, lots of evil acts have been committed against them. I'm concerned that when you go through those evil acts that you have your head straight, you're thinking about it the way you should. Hence this sermon. The second concern is that you maybe are not personally afflicted by suffering, but you have people in your life who challenge you, who are really struggling. If God is who you say he is, then why did he fill in the blank? Why did he make me this way? If I'm not supposed to be homosexual, why do I have these strong feelings? Why would God make me deny myself in that way? That's evil. Why would God deny me of love? That's evil. Uh, Why would God let this maniac come into our school and shoot us down? Why does your God let that happen? I thought your God was good, Christian. So my pastoral concern extends not only to you personally as you think through this if, it's a, if it affects you, but also you also personally in the terms of the people around you when they ask you, why would you ever think to believe in a good God when the world that we live in is so incredibly broken? I want you to have an answer. But I'm going to spill the beans now. No matter what I say tonight, and I've prepared things to say, you're not going to walk away suddenly feeling good about this. You're not going to walk away saying, oh, that that makes perfect sense of evil and suffering. I totally get it. I feel great. I understand it. This is going to be totally easy to walk through. No, 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 no. I want you to feel a certain sense of discomfort. In fact, as I was thinking about how I want this sermon to hit you guys, I want you to respond with humility. That's really your only card we get to play, humility. And you'll understand why very soon. But in that humility, I also want you to have a trust and a confidence in the God that has made you and me and how his grand and glorious purposes fit evil into that, those purposes. I prayed for tonight. I need you to be ready to work through some of this. It's not all easy. It's not all fun. It's, in fact, very heavy. So one of the best places that we can turn in scripture to really get a handle on this and how God works through this is Genesis chapter 50. Turn with me there and we're going to look at the ways that God uses evil. What we're going to see is that God in fact does use sin. God uses sin sinlessly to accomplish his ultimately good purposes. God uses sin sinlessly to accomplish his ultimately good purposes. Genesis 50, uh, this is the last season of Joseph's life that's recorded for us. You remember Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. They sell him. Uh, They intend to kill him at first, but then they sell him. God sends a a band of people there that they uh, sell him to. And then he goes to this whole season of being imprisoned, you know, being uh, falsely accused. Uh, And so this is the last part of Joseph's life. And here's how this goes into detail for us. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, so Abraham just died, and they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. They recognized that. They committed evil against him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now the brother's talking again, please forgive the transgression of your servants uh, of, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke this to him. 
And so you have in this story, uh, the brother saying, we committed evil against you, but hey, dad wants you to forgive us. Will you please forgive us for the evil that we committed against you? And by the way, before he died, that's what he said. Will you please forgive us? One thing I want to point to you very quickly, and this first point is going to go fast, so hang on to your seatbelts here, is that whether or not you, how you understand this next point will, under, will help you understand the rest of the sermon. So let's just start with this. We need to face the evil, face the reality of evil, rather. Face the reality of evil. Scripture talks about evil, and it makes no apologies in some senses. Scripture says this is the reality that you live in. Now, philosophically, you can say evil exists as something, but it is really the absence of good. So for instance, if I lie to you, it's the absence of truth. Uh, Darkness is the absence of light. Murder is the absence of protecting and of building. So evil is not a thing in a a sense, uh, because evil is really the consequence of sin. It is the absence and the removal of good Uh, And so it's not a thing necessarily, but it is real. Nevertheless, it is real. It is something we have to face head on, and Scripture does this really well. But we're going to talk about the ways that people think about evil really quickly because I want you not, again, to underestimate the issue. There's a famous video that I'm going to show you really quickly here of a guy named Stephen Fry. He was asked by a reporter about his understanding of evil. Of, you, know, you, go, you go to heaven and you see God, and here's his response. I'd like for you to pay close attention to what he says to justify his response. Take a listen. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations. Suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates, and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in on that? but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a... not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that I ever got in this entire series. Okay. I wonder how you might answer Stephen Fry. I wonder what you would say in response to that. 
Because whether or not you like his response, and, and I, I don't either, but you have to say, okay, well, okay, let's talk about the parasite that burrows in the children's eyes. Let's talk about bone cancer. And you have to have a framework by which you can answer him. But let me first quickly define some of the issues that we're dealing with first. The, the problem of evil defined begins excuse me, with an emotional, an emotional issue. First and foremost, evil when we're dealing with people, guys, and, and especially if you have a friend who comes to you and says, hey, you know, my, my uncle died of such and such. How could your God let this happen? You have to understand they're not looking for answers at that point. They're looking for comfort. People who come to you with emotional weariness of, I experienced this great evil. How could this happen? Your answer is not going to be, well, let me tell you three philosophical reasons why God allowed evil. And among those things is his glory and honor. And don't do that. First and foremost, if people come to you with that kind of response, the answer is not philosophical. The answer is, I love you. Let me hug it out with you. You know, let me, let me help you. I want to work with you through this. The emotional problem is different than what we're tackling tonight, although I do care about that. You have to understand, if someone's coming to you in that way, or if you're that person, if your small group, uh, your sister or your brother comes to you and they're having that kind of week, uh, pat answers don't work. Um, answers that are present and purposeful, those work. You're not seeking to alleviate the suffering necessarily. You're seeking to enter into it with them and to say, I'm sorry, let's, let's pray this out. Let's talk about this. Tell me more. Tell me about your uncle. Tell me about what happened. There is a time and place to enter into the logical discussion, but it's usually not at, at moments of impact, the first moment that you experience it. The emotional issue is the big one. That one's not... Uh, that one's not governed by logical. But speaking of logical, the problem of evil defined uh, one of the great... So we talked about David Hume again. We talked, to him, we talked about David Hume uh, and his position on miracles. And now we're going to bring him up again because he's had a lot of influence on modern day thinkers. And surprise, surprise, it sounds a lot like what Stephen Fry just said. He says this here, uh, quote, uh, is he willing to prevent evil, God, but not able? Then he is impotent. He's powerless. Is he able, but not willing, then is he malevolent? That is, he's a bad God. He's, he's got evil intentions. Is he both able and willing? If that were the case, why does evil exist in the first place? You know, at first glance, you might feel like, oh, that's interesting. Interesting thought. But this has actually carried quite a bit of weight for a long season of life. In fact, I'm just going to give you a second here to think out loud. No, not out loud. Think quietly. How would you answer this? David Hume's at your Thanksgiving barbecue or whatever you're doing. He's one of the three people that you're allowed to hang out with on Thanksgiving Day. And he brings this up to you. How do you respond to this? Go ahead and in your mind, just craft an answer. You know, before you do that, here, here's another way that this looks. The logical progression laid out this way. God exists. God is all good. God is all-powerful, evil exists. If you're thoughtful about this, you might say that, well, that last one, it seems to suggest that one of those other three is not compatible. How do you fit together all four of those puzzle pieces such that they make a picture that makes sense? Now think about this. God is all good. Omnibenevolent. He is all good. If God is all good, how is there any evil whatsoever? Put another way, you might think of it this, this way. If God is all good, he would destroy evil, right? If God is all good, doesn't it make sense that that good God would want to eliminate all evil, all suffering? Wouldn't a good God want to get rid of bone cancer? Wouldn't a good God stop Adam Lanza at the door of the, of the elementary school before he pulls the trigger on that first first grader? 
God is all good, he would destroy evil. If God is all powerful, he could destroy evil. We talk about God's omnipotence all the time, right? He's om omnipotent, he's got all power. He could do whatever he wants, because he's God. We might nuance that a bit, but that more or less is the, the argument, right? He's God, he could destroy evil, but he doesn't. And that's really the crux, the turn point here. Evil still exists. We agree that it's real. We agree that it's here. Most people would therefore conclude that God, as we think he does in the Bible, does not exist. Do you feel the tension yet? Do you feel the pain of this? I can see some of you. Talk to me. Do you feel this? Do you feel the weight of this yet? Before your mind jumps to the theological conclusion, you need to be able to empathize with people. And I'm talking to people now, so I'm, I want you to have that sense of, I get it. I get why this is such a big issue. I get why people struggle with this. Now, this is the, the logical framework. But there's one more here that I want to draw to your attention. It's just the evidential problem, the evidential problem of evil. And essentially, it, it could be summarized as this. So much evil exists in the world that it doesn't seem likely, it's not probable that the God of the Bible exists because there's so much of it. It'd be one thing if it was just a, a couple occurrences here and there, we could see redeeming value in that. But the amount of evil that we experience kind of goes against what we see in the Bible. Again, all good, all powerful, all loving and all that stuff. So therefore, the God of the Bible can't exist. It's just too unlikely. That's how some of them would propose that. And in fact, speaking of propositions, let's talk about some of the options. As we think through evil as it, as it exists, how can we deal with it? Well, first, we could say God doesn't exist. That's Stephen Fry. Therefore, the God of the Bible doesn't exist. There's no way that a God like this would ever be something that I don't want to worship. Uh, when I go to the pearly gates, I'm going to tell him, how dare you? Because he made the world as he did. Therefore, I don't want to respond to that. By the way, if God doesn't exist, then evil doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, then evil doesn't exist. Think about this with me. If God doesn't exist, that means there are not objective standards of right and wrong. We talked about this. Remember when we talked about conscience? You can prove God because of creation, conscience, and Christ. If God doesn't exist, there are no objective standards for what is right and what is wrong. We merely have preference. Preference. I prefer that Adam Lanza didn't murder people. But if there's no God, I can't say, I cannot say it was definitively wrong and evil. Evil simply becomes a word that means I really, really don't like it. But only when you enter God into the picture can you ever say with, with certainty, this is evil and this is good. So God doesn't exist, doesn't really seem to answer the problem here. Well, you could say, well, then God isn't all good. You could say that uh, the world that, uh, the, the, the God that exists in the world is flawed and, and he actually is uh, part evil uh, and hence that's why you have evil in the world. Do people actually believe this? Yes. Trust me on this? Yes, people actually believe this. But that doesn't seem to fit well either. You could also say God is not all powerful. Uh, naturalism suggests that God, and this is where process theology comes into place. Process theology is the idea that God is still a work in progress. He processes just like we do. As we get older, God's getting older. As we learn, God is learning. As we hurt, God is hurting. Uh, and, and the understanding of this worldview, God is a being who is limited in his knowledge. That doesn't quite square with what we're working with either. Certainly not biblically. 
But if God is in process, then that's pretty hopeless. That does not sound like a kind of God that we'd want to serve. You could also say that evil doesn't exist. You could pretend that evil actually is illusory. It's an illusion. That's what Christian science teaches. That's what some forms of Hinduism teaches. Uh, Evil is actually just all in your head, and you have to overcome evil by simply thinking differently. That, That really does not jive well with our experience and certainly not Scripture. Tonight, then, I'm going to argue that the only plausible answer for us is theism, Christian theism, that God, in fact, does exist. He is, in fact, all good. He is, in fact, all powerful. And evil still exists. How do we reconcile these things, then? Evil is real and problematic, but let me encourage you with this. Genesis 50, verse 18 As we think about evil now, we say, okay, evil is real. It exists. Uh, What are we supposed to do with that? Mentally, how do we think about this? Well, uh, we're going to take a slight deviation, but it'll make sense in a second, okay? Genesis 50, verse 18. I want you to notice this. His brothers also came and fell down before Joseph and said, behold, we are your servants. Now, if you know your Bible, you might remember that Joseph actually had a dream about this. He He had this idea that his brothers and his mother and father would bow down at his feet and they would pay him homage. Uh, They didn't like that. But at the end of Joseph's life, this happens again. So it's already been fulfilled in the biblical narrative. But now, at the end of his life, he has his brothers doing this again. We are your servants. Whatever you want, we will do. What was wrong was made right, at least in a temporary sense, right? Uh, You really ultimately can't pay Joseph back for all that they did to him. They could never really repay that burden, that debt. But in this small way, God vindicates this story and says, look, I made the wrong thing right. So the second thing I want to bring to your attention, when we think about evil, it means that we must put ourselves in the position of saying, I trust you, God, to make bad things right, to right all the wrongs. The qualifier, though, is in his time. You see, even with Joseph, there was years and years where he felt like his life had come to an end where he felt like there was no hope for him because he was in a prison cell rotting away. Joseph thought that God was going to let his dream die, you know, his vision. But God came through, but not in the timing that Joseph probably wanted. One of the things I want you to feel with me is the sense of justice that evil awakens within us. That sense of, oh, this isn't right. I want to do something about this. God, please stop it. Like the kind of evil that you see and hear about that makes you just want to pull out your hair and say, this cannot be. God, do something about the evil. I was reading a book by Ellie Weissel. Ellie Yazer is his full name. Ellie Weissel. He writes a book called Night. He details his experience in the concentration camps. Listen close as I read you just a short passage of what he says. Okay? And this is that pull your hair out kind of evil. Okay? He writes, Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard the the same man asking, for God's sake, where 
is God. And from within me, I heard a voice answer. Where is he? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. That night, the soup tasted of corpses. In case you couldn't tell, L.E. Wiesel was witnessing the hangings of people that, for whatever reason, were in trouble. Among those people hanging was a young man, a boy, a child, whose weight didn't break his neck when his cord dropped, his, his rope dropped. So he lingered there, half alive, half dead. Talk about wanting to pull out your hair and saying, this is not right. This is not good. I hate this. That response is the right response. Because, see, what Scripture points us to, when we experience things like this evil, Scripture points us to the fact that someday, Jesus, the conquering king, will crush all evil and suffering, and he will annihilate every single enemy that stands against him. There is a day on the horizon where he will fully and finally crush the head of the serpent, the enemy. He will destroy sin and death. However, we live in the temporary, now and not yet, waiting for this to materialize. So then how do we deal with evil? Well, some of the things that we have to remember is that God will execute final justice. God will execute final justice. Joseph's brothers, that's a little bit of justice. They bowed down to him. They said, hey, please forgive us. But that's not justice. That's barely a modicum of justice based on what he went through. And then the same thing is true when it comes to every other form of evil in the world. Think about this. Can Adam Lanza, the guy who murdered those 21st graders, can Adam Lanza be in prison long enough to satisfy justice for those 20 souls? Think about that. Of course not. Of course not. How do we get justice for Adam Lanza then? Can he, what if we murdered him? Not murder, but we kill him. Execute him. Justice served. We execute Adam Lanza. Does that bring justice? Of course not. He's one man, and there are 26, 27 others that he murdered in cold blood. So human justice points to the cosmic justice that God brings, and our job in the meantime is to pray that God bring justice. And he will. God will execute final justice. It's coming. In fact, that's why scripture can tell us things like this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to God's wrath. Why? It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You think you're mad about evil? You're mad about evil and you're an imperfect creature. How do you think God feels about evil? God will execute final justice. Revelation 16 his justice looks like this. Revelation 6, verse 16. Calling to the mountains and the rocks. These people, these people that are, are receiving God's wrath, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The unshakable confidence of the Christian is not that justice will be received in this life. We pray and we beg God to bring justice sooner than later, which is why one of the reasons we think, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Young person, when you go through evil, when evil happens upon your life, 
when something horrific comes upon your family, your friends, your neighbors. Let this anchor you. God will execute final justice. He is just and he will destroy sin. Remember this also. God will establish perfected good. It's not enough for God to remove evil. God also brings in the perfected good. Revelation 21, this is the final chapter, the closing of this human existence as we know it. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God will dwell with him just as he was supposed to do in the garden when Adam and Eve were created. God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the glorious future that we point to. This is the thing that we look forward to. Death no longer separates. There's no more tears to cry, no more tears of sadness because all of the things that would make you sad have been obliterated by a good and and glorious God who perfects everything that is broken. Yes, God destroys and crushes the enemy. And yes, God God also establishes good in ways that are far beyond our comprehension. Paul even talks about our body. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. When what is sown perishable, our broken body is raised imperishable. It never dies. It is sown in dishonor, it's broken, it's weak, it has cancer, it has broken bones. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul's point is that the future body that you and I will have in the new creation with God is going to be way better than you've ever experienced in this life. These are the kind of things that we have to know going into pain and not in the moments of our crisis. Whether or not you believe this is going to determine how you respond to the evil moment. Evil succession of moments. Evil is not one time, obviously. Some of us experience more evil than others. You've got to have these truths staked in your heart, ready to pull out. This is where it gets interesting. And this is where I'm going to struggle. I struggle to say it right, but I've been practicing. Here goes. As we think about evil, we have to think about evil in terms of God's absolute sovereignty over absolutely everything. Okay? God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything, which is to say that there is nothing that happens in this life, even right now, that is not directly inside of God's control and even his will, his ordination, that God does what God wants to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, the Psalms tell us. Our understanding of who God is according to scripture tells us that everything that happens in your life is because God wanted that in some way. God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything. The theological term for this, it's important that you understand this. When we talk about God's providence, that God God ordains all things. We talk about his providence. There's a category of his providence called concursus or concurrence. We think about the word con with, currents, with the event, you know. Concurrence, well, let me just put it out here. I put it on this a slide for you. Concurrence is the exercise of God's power 
on created things according to their natures so that the finite causation is respected, but divine purposes are nonetheless accomplished. I'll let you read that again because I know that's a thick sentence. The idea is that you and I act as creatures, as people. We do things. We do real things. But there's never a thing that we do that is not in some way mysteriously governed and ordained by God. Some people take this and say, well, that means that if God is sovereign, that means every action that I make and choose to do is not really a choice because I'm doing exactly what God told me to do or God programmed me to do this. And so there's real no choice in the matter. I am simply a robot. I'm a puppet on a string because God ordains all things. Well, the doctrine of concurrence underneath the umbrella of God's providence teaches us that, well, no, it's not exactly the way it works. Yes, God is sovereign, but at the same time, you are making choices, real choices, that are never, ever, ever independent or separate from God's ordination. Okay, God's ordaining things. Let me show you some of this in Scripture. I need you to see this and understand this. Okay, God is absolutely sovereign over creation. Take a look at this. Psalm 148, verses 7 and 8. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Notice that God's ordination, his oversight, his sovereignty extends even to inanimate creation. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Everything in creation is subject to God's will and desire. It goes on. How about animals? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Think about this. Have you ever thought about the fact that animals attack people? And yet God has intimately connected with animals. You guys see that, uh, that viral video of that guy that was being chased by that cheetah? Is that a cheetah? It's a mountain lion. It was a cat. Figures. As a Christian, we can say God, God wanted that to happen in some sense, wanted that to happen because God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything, including, thank God, cats. What about random things? You ever do that thing where you pick up a pencil and you drop it? Did God plan for me to do that? What if I do this? <laughs> if I step to the left as opposed to the right, did God ordain that? Well, here's an answer for you. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If you roll a dice, God decrees the outcome of those dice roll. Everything you do, random decisions that you make are of the Lord. Not convinced? How about this? For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. There's not a single ruler in any continent on any place at all that God did not install. Governor Newsom is God's plan. President Trump, for the time being, and maybe longer, is God's plan. How about battles and wars? Well, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. One more. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So literally everything you do is governed and ordained by God. Do you see where the problem arises? If God is sovereign over absolutely everything, what does that mean about evil? 
What does that mean about evil? Because here's where you start having to get close to, right? Here's the line of God's sovereignty and his goodness. And you start saying, well, wait a minute. If God is sovereign over absolutely everything, including random decisions, random things, does that mean God is doing evil? Is God not what I thought he was? Logically, that's my only conclusion, right? Logically, I have to say, God is responsible for the evil in my life. Logically. Is that how we should understand it, though? We shouldn't answer it too quickly on that. Let me help, try to help with this. First, you should understand that God is the primary cause of everything. There's no way around that. You're, so on the one hand, I would say the, uh, the affirmative. God is the primary cause of everything. God is, uh, for you to breathe right now, it requires God to allow your breath to live, to have effect in your body. When a, when a mass murderer goes to the school and shoots up the place, the energy that that mass murderer is using is God's energy. It's God's oxygen. The muscles in his body are orchestrated by God himself. Remember Hebrews chapter 1? Uh, uh, verse three, that uh, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. I told you, when Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, it's not passive. Jesus is actively engaged in the intimate details of human existence, even if that human existence is someone pulling a trigger to murder an innocent human being. God is the primary cause of everything. Does that then mean that God is somehow responsible for the evil that is perpetuated, and I'm going to say no, because we as secondary agents have, as I, as I put here, we have choices that we make that are genuine, willing, meaningful, and ultimately accountable and responsible to God. So even though it's true that we will never fully understand the mind of God and, ordin or, or, and his ordination of all things, he tells us that we are responsible. He gives us you know, the, the creatureliness and gives our creatureliness personhood, where we make real decisions that have real consequences. And so, even though God is the primary cause, we as the secondary causes are who are held responsible because we have choices in the matter. Now, granted, I did not say you have a free will. Did not say that. You don't. You don't have a free will. There's no such thing as a free will. When you're not in Christ, your will is bound to sin. You're not free to live righteously. You're unable to do that. When you are in Christ, you don't have a free will. Your will is now bound to righteousness that God decrees, that he wants you to do. So in neither case, whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, there's no such thing as a free will. Free in the sense that it's libertarian. I can do whatever I want. But you have a real, meaningful choice that God gives you because you are a person. You still might be wondering, well, then what, where does God fit in this equation? And if God's the one who's telling the guy to rob the bank, isn't God still somehow accountable? And the answer, in short, is no, he's not. And, and I, I, can, I have verses here for you to take a look at, but Scripture does present God as being the one who is behind everything. But never, ever, ever does it show God being the direct agent or cause of evil. Never does it say God is happy about evil, God uh, creates evil for fun, or that he is somehow deriving some pleasure out of it. Well, what it does say is that God is perfectly good, and he uses sin sinlessly for his ultimately good outcomes. God is sovereign. 
absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. We get to make decisions. We are rightly held accountable for our actions. But our decision-making, our freedom, if you will, is never, ever, ever not dependent and even contingent upon God's sovereign will. When you put these two things together, I know this is challenging, guys. Stay with me. You put these two things together, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We have another theological term that you would do well to memorize called compatibilism. In that, compatibilism suggests, teaches, that God is fully sovereign and man has real decision-making responsibility. How do you put those two together? I don't know. I do know this, though. If God is the one who created the planets, who created the eyeball, who created everything around us, surely he is infinitely wise and infinitely intelligent in ways that are far beyond our measly little brains could ever fully comprehend. And therefore, I could probably trust him with resolving a logical difficulty for me that is not a problem for him. By the way, anytime scripture uh, has a person who's challenging God and saying, why would you do this, God? Think about Job. Job, for 40 chapters, complains about God. And if I just had a chance to talk to God, I would tell him what's wrong and I would argue my case and then I would tell God what he needs to do. What happens at the end of that story? God comes to Job and God questions Job upwards and downwards. It gives him a, a theological beatdown. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I uh, created the deeps of the waters and created the heavens of the stars? And, and at the end of this, Job says, you know what? I, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. I was, I'm a dummy. I was speaking about things that I have no clue about. Whenever someone tries to strong arm God into saying, why would you do this, God? God answers by saying, I don't owe you a thing. I am God. You are the creature. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Do not ever assume that you could ever comprehend me the way that you comprehend your friend. I am God. You are the creature. Romans 9, when Paul talks about God's sovereign decree for who gets saved and who doesn't get saved, he says, well, then how could anyone find fault with him? How could anyone, uh, you know, force their will upon him? And then Paul says, but who are you, O man? Who are you to ask God? Who are you to challenge the creator of the heavens and the earth? You're asking about things that are far above your pay grade. You're never going to figure it out. You're never going to fully understand. This is hard, guys. This is hard. God is never presented as evil. He's never shown as directly being the agent of evil. Scripture over and over again says that God is good, he is perfectly righteous, and yet, ultimately, because he is the primary cause, we are the secondary cause, behind all things has to be God as sovereign, ordaining the good, and in some way, allowing the evil. It's, it's not like this, okay? It's not like a balance where he does good and he does evil. It's asymmetrical, right? It's an asymmetrical relationship where God directly causes and does good, but his relationship with evil is a lot more challenging than that. It is not uh, God's doing evil. God allows it. And even the words that we choose as humans to describe it, we use the word allow often. But even if you say, okay, God's allowing things, how would he allow? He's sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. So of course, God is in some way relating to evil 
but not in the same way as the good. Remember, asymmetrical relationship. God is fully responsible for the good that happens, but he allows evil. He uses evil. God uses sin sinlessly to accomplish his ultimate good purposes. Concurses. Concurrence. God takes one event that people intend for evil, and he takes that same event and uses it for good. This is why I chose Genesis 50. Here's, here's, here's what it looks like on display. Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I the one who's supposed to execute judgment? No, I'm not that guy. I'm not God. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Same event, two different purposes, executing two different consequences. Brothers intend for evil, but that same exact event, concurrently, God is working through that event to accomplish good. That's concurrence. Same event, one means evil, God means good. But ultimately, God is behind that act, which even he says in a few, ver- a few chapters earlier, he says, God brought me here to Egypt. Well, no, not really. The, the, the slave owners brought you to Egypt. But he says, no, God brought me to Egypt. You see, scripture talks about this unabashedly. God is behind everything. And therefore, God who is good takes evil events. And he says, I'm going to accomplish good through these things. I need to understand God has reasons for allowing evil. And this is a, again, this is not going to be one of those answers that leaves you saying, oh, I feel so good about this now. God has good reasons for allowing evil. This is one of the things that you have to settle in your soul. When it happens to you, you have to say, okay, what do I believe about this, God? I'm suffering. I'm in pain. I'm in anguish. I hate this. What do I do? God, you're behind it. You have good purposes for this. I I have no other recourse. If you're an atheist, you have nothing. You have, oh, this feels bad. I don't like this. A Christian can say, no, this is evil. And I know that God has a purpose for this. Here's a simple analogy. It's not going to be perfect because all analogies limp. But when your parents took you to the doctor and they stuck a needle in your, in your leg, that for you in that moment didn't feel good. You hated that. You looked at your mom and dad and said, why are you letting this happen to me? I, I'm, I'm angry right now. I'm frustrated. This is painful. And yet your parents let that happen. They let evil happen to you for a good purpose. Your sports coach, your coach makes you do drills. He makes you run to the point of feeling like you're going to throw up. And yet you sign up for that. Why? Because there's a good purpose at the end of that, right? You're fit, you're strong, you're a formidable force on the field. One of the key verses for this is Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, this is for Christians. Listen to this, Christian. For those who love God, who, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Four quick things, and I'll wrap this up. Four quick things, okay? What are some of the good things God is accomplishing through the allowance of evil? Well, first and foremost, salvation. Salvation. The greatest act of evil accomplished one of the greatest goods that we could experience, namely salvation, because God let Jesus, the sinless son of God, the spotless lamb, have a false trial, be raised on a cross, brutalized, and yet through that event, the worst event in human history, God accomplishes salvation. Write these passages down because we don't have time to go through them, but in Acts 4 and Acts 2, you see that it was God's will. It was God's ordination of these events. And yet um, the blame is not placed on God. It is uh, placed on those who commit the violent act. So Acts 4, 27 to 28 and Acts 2, 23. 
God has good reasons for allowing evil. One of them, salvation. Another one that God accomplishes through evil is soul making. Uh, You might say character formation. And James chapter one says that when God lets you go through trials and suffering, he is creating a character within you that is more reflective of the image of Christ. He says, let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ultimately, God lets you go through trials and evil and suffering so that you might better conform to the image of Christ. Another one. There is greater good, and this is a general sense, there is greater good that God accomplishes by letting evil persist. And this, by the way, the greater good argument is what ultimately makes logical sense out of the, the, the issue that I brought up to you. Remember, God is, uh, exists, he's all good, he's all powerful, but evil exists. It's only a logical contradiction if you can't say that at the end of that process, God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil to exist. And that's what we say. God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil to exist. The greater good argument. Now, quick, quick note here. We're talking about greater good. You have to define good biblically. A lot of us think greater good, like, oh, this is gonna, I'm going to be wealthier. I'm going to be more attractive. I'm gonna, I mean, there's a lot of things that we might think about when we think about the word good. Just to think about the word good from a theological perspective, which ultimately, ultimately, and we, have a, we could say justice, God accomplishes justice. He accomplishes mercy. He, he shows grace and favor. There's a lot of good things that could happen as a result of God's allowance of evil. But ultimately, everything that happens in this world is to the praise of his glory. This might hurt a little more than some of the other things. Your pain is for God's glory. Your suffering is for God's glory. The ultimate reason for your and my existence is not our comfort. It is God's glory. When you suffer and you go through evil trials and experiences, the ultimate answer for us is is not that it's going to result in necessarily a good in this life necessarily, but God's glory, ultimately. You and I, we have 75 years, right? We have 75 years, God willing. But how long has human history gone on for, so, for, this, for this far, right? Human history has been thousands of years. For an evolutionist, it's like forever, billions. Human history is a lot longer than the 75 years that we get. We have a limited perspective. Our job is to sit back and realize, God, you are God, I am the creature. God, you're the Lord, and I'm simply me. God gives us He gives us dignity. He gives us value because we're made in his image. But ultimately, never forget, God is in charge. Remember how we started the sermon talking about humility? God is in charge. He is the creator. You are the creature. He is the Lord. You are the slave. I think about evil. We have to realize that in the context of how God speaks to us, even evil is going to lead to the glory of God. That's why God lets it exist. That's why God allows it to persist told you that this sermon isn't going to leave you feeling good, right? Because you still have to deal with, okay, well, some of, the, some of the evil that I see, God, is so distressing. And at that point, you have to say, I don't know, Lord. I don't know. But you have good plans. Like Job, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and say, I, 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 can't, I can't answer you. You're the Lord. Doesn't mean we don't pray. Doesn't mean we don't beg God to bring righteousness. But it's hard Ultimately, we have to say that there's only God knows ultimately what's going to happen. Only God knows. Only God knows. There are good answers to this. 
somewhat satisfying answers, but only God, only the mind of God fully understands the mind of God. Here's an interesting thought. When I talk to my baby daughter, I have two baby daughters now. One's three, one's like eight months or something. <laughs> I should know that. <laughs> when I talk to them, I don't talk to them like I talk to you. Right? I use bigger words. Uh, I have a different cadence. I, I use longer sentences. But when I talk to them, I, I condescend. Right? I, I do baby talk a little bit and. I'll use shorter sentences with Carissa because I want her to understand me and I'm trying hard to connect with her. It occurred to me as I was talking to them, I thought, I wonder, I wonder how much God condescends to us. You see, because Carissa and Tabitha, they don't know I'm condescending, right? In their minds, this is normal life. They're living life happily as a three-year-old and an eight-month-year-old. <laughs> That's normal life for them. They don't know, they're not any the wiser. I mean, when they get older, they'll realize, oh, dad was talking to me like a baby. But they don't know that. How much does God condescend to us and we not know it? How much does God lower the bar so that he can communicate with us because he loves us and he cares about us, but we never are any the wiser that he is condescending? I have a sneaky suspicion that that's, this is how the, the, the subject of evil works. We talk about God's infinite mind, his ability to, to know the end from the beginning. And he condescends to us and he says, hey, don't worry, I'm good, I'm perfectly good, I'm just, I'm righteous, trust me. I've got this under control, I know what I'm doing, you're the creature, I'm the creator, I'm the Lord, you're the servant, trust me, I got this. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and I don't know if you guys know him, but he was one of the surviving guys, uh, one of the survivors of uh, Auschwitz. Uh, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning, and it became a wild bestseller. He was a doctor beforehand. He ended up writing more works after that. But even he, as I mean, he's a, he was a Jew, um, an, an ethnic and religious Jew at the time. But he wrote, if there's no, if there is no meaning in life at all, then there, excuse me, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. You see, most people understand this. They, at least this is what we want to understand. We want to believe this, right? But this is why the Christian religion makes the most sense of any other religion. Because at the center of our religion is the most evil act, period. Crucifying the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, and saying, out of this evil, I am going to create great good and great glory. Tonight, as you work through your small group questions, and I apologize for not finishing this, finishing this earlier, I really want you to wrestle with this and to think through this clearly and articulately and be ready for when it happens. I need you to think about, when you think about the evil, think about the cross of Christ. This is the greatest evil imaginable. And yet God uses this for his glory and for our good. And if we can trust that, certainly we can trust God when evil happens to us. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.